Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Martin Studio today. I'm Darren Hefty. And I'm Brian Hefty. Thanks for joining us. Today in the show, we're going to talk a little about sulfur needs of crops. Yes, every crop needs sulfur. And because we have far less air pollution, at least in North America here, than what we used to, well, you know what? We used to get a whole bunch of free sulfur. We don't get that anymore. So we want to talk today about how much does your crop actually need and what are the best and least expensive ways to get it, especially in a year like this when fertilizer prices are high. If you've got any questions for us or if there's anything you'd like to talk about that's happening on your farm, our number here is 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. Or you can send us an email, radio at agphd.com. All right, so I'll give you a couple things on sulfur and then we'll get to the Ag PhD mailbag here. First of all, with sulfur, we'd really encourage you just download the free Ag PhD fertilizer removal app. When you pull that up, it's going to show you by crops. You can select whatever crop it is you're raising. So I'm just, I've got it on my phone right here. I'm just pulling it up. I'm, I'm pulling up corn, for example. And let's say I put in 240 bushel corn, which is what I'm hoping our farm average is this year or better. And 240 bushel corn, you need 36 pounds of sulfur. Think about that. 36 pounds of sulfur. That's a lot. Grain removal is 19. And you might say, well, if I'm not removing the stover, that's 17 pounds. Uh, that should all stay out in the field. Well, yes, you're right. It should if all you're doing is taking away the grain. But I want you to think about this. Sulfur is leachable. In the sulfate form, that sulfur can leave your field at roughly half the pace of nitrate, is what they say. So if I get rainfall, then I'm going to lose some of my sulfur there. And I already used up a bunch with the grain crop. So it doesn't leave you a whole lot. And yes, organic matter mineralization will give you a little sulfur. We usually talk about two to three pounds of sulfur that you can get out of your soil for free every year through organic matter mineralization for each 1% of organic matter. So for example, if I had 5% organic matter, I multiply that times two to three. So that'd be 10 to 15 pounds of sulfur I can get for free out of my soil. But on a 240 bushel corn crop, is that going to be enough? Nope, it's not. And am I going to carry over all my sulfur from the previous season? Nope, I'm probably not. I mean, yeah, maybe in heavy ground and drought year you will. But otherwise, no. And especially light soil, no. So we'd really encourage you, get some sulfur out there if you know that you need it. You got a soil test, and then you might even want to do a mid-season soil test because I'm betting you're going to do a mid-season soil test for nitrogen if you put more nitrogen on later in the year. It's pretty easy at that point, pretty cheap to test for sulfur at the same time or just include some sulfur along with your nitrogen when you're doing your side dress in corn, your stream barring in wheat, or whatever crop it is you're planting and whatever later season fertility you're applying. Okay, let's get to the Ag PhD mailbag. It's now mailbag time with Brian and Darren. All right, Brian, I get two questions. Hopefully we can get to both of these before the first break because they fall right into what you're saying. So this one comes from Nathan down in Texas. He said, we're shooting for 240 bushel corn. So that's the number you threw out earlier. And he said, we put on 14 tons per acre of this manure that has 19 pounds of first year availability per ton. 
So we've got enough for 240 bushel corn. We also Wait, plan stop. To- nitrogen now you're talking. Nitrogen. Okay. Yep. And we also plan to put 40 units out through the pivot. My question is, do we trust that we have enough with the manure or since we can often be pretty dry down here, will that all come available? Now, the argument of your dry comment, Nathan, is if you've got irrigation, you're not dry anymore. You, you've got however much water you're going to need. So I think you're going to be just fine with what's going to come available. The question is, was that spread evenly? And this is one of the yep. challenges with manure that, yes, you put 14 tons out there, but if you did it all in one pass, it could be that it's not perfect. I mean, you think about it when you're spreading fertilizer on your lawn, you're supposed to spread one direction and then you're supposed to go exactly the opposite way, kitty, or I'm sorry, crossways across it. That way, in case you had any spot that didn't get spread, at least you got it covered at the second pass. But we don't do that with manure. We spread it once. So I would be a little bit nervous about that. Adding some with the pivot is certainly going to help, but you're definitely going to find out if you had a good spread pattern if you rely just on the manure. When you look at almost any manure test, they'll give you two different factors for nitrogen. One is ammonium and the other is organic. When it's ammonium nitrogen, that's going to be available, if not today, really, really soon. But then you also have this organic nitrogen component. And just for example, it says on this one, 29.6 pounds per ton. And estimated first year availability out of that is 11.8 pounds per ton. So less than half. With that organic nitrogen, it releases slowly over time. So even though it says estimated first-year availability, it's kind of like soil organic matter. Is that 11.8 pounds available today? No. Is it available next week? No. Is some part of it going to be available soon within the next month? Yes. But how much of that 11.8? We don't know. How much is going to be available by July? We don't know. So the, the key thing here is you never want to short your crop on nitrogen. So what I would do is I'd be pulling a mid-season test, if not even a couple different mid-season tests, because it's real easy when you have a pivot to throw more nitrogen out there. Here's my other concern with this manure test that you sent us. There's no factor in here for salt. And you talked about 14 tons, not four, 14 tons getting applied per acre. I'm concerned about how much salt you're getting out there. So it may not be an enormously huge issue, but I just, I worry about salt a lot. So as a general statement, what we often tell people is if you start exceeding your level of safe salt per acre, a lot of times we we talk 500 pounds per acre of salt. And that's in decent conditions, not super dry conditions. But anyway, if I had 500 and as my limit and I'm getting a thousand out there with this 14 tons and I don't know because I don't have a test Uh, then I'd want to cut that down spread it out over more acres and you'll be way ahead even if yes you have to now supplement with commercial fertilizer but remember salt kills too much salt kills We're talking about sulfur on today's program and the sulfur needs of crops. We'll also be taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. Stay tuned. Boost your productivity and profitability with Soil Warrior from environmental tillage systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and your yield potential in just one strip-till pass. Now that's ROI. Contact us today at SoilWarrior.com. 
Here at Farm Shop MFG, we keep hearing from folks who've tried our germinators. Deverne in Missouri says, After seeing our harvest results, I'm an enthusiastic supporter of the Farm Shop MFG germinator closing wheel. See what others are saying at farmshopmfg.com. This is Stormy Fields with your weather forecast. Today calls for a high of 68 degrees with sunny skies and not a cloud in sight. Planting windows can close fast, so when you need both speed and accuracy, choose John Deere. Our exact eMERGE planters and precision ag technologies give you precise seed placement for uniform emergence and the efficiency you need to gain ground. See what you have to gain at johndeere.com slash gain ground. Get tough on resistant weeds. Tough IVC is a selective, contact post-emergent herbicide that synergizes HPBD inhibitors and enhances the effect of atrazine. Tough IVC works fast and can significantly improve the control of weeds such as water hemp, palmer, and kochia today and help prevent the selection of herbicide resistance tomorrow. Tough IVC is in stock and ready to ship. Ask your local retailer about Tough IVC or visit belchimusa.com. Always read and follow label instructions. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. Back, you're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton Studio today, talking sulfur. And we'll start off down in Iowa with our friend Kelly Garrett. Kelly, when we're talking sulfur, I, I would assume with the kind of yields you're raising, that's a big one for you. Are you putting sulfur on every crop? Yes, sir, we are. Sulfur is the second most important nutrient we have after nitrogen, in my opinion. You know, when you think about sulfur, there's a lot of things that it does in the plant. And what we've been looking at on our farm, too, it seems like as we put more sulfur on, uh, the crop's using it. And I don't know if we've really met our needs in the past. I, I thought we were doing pretty good on that, but it seems like a little higher rate is showing some response. Is it just the sulfur or is it some of the other things sulfur is doing in the soil? What, what do you think on your farm? I believe that some of the other things sulfur is doing in the soil, Darren, I look at sulfur as a soil amendment first and a nutrient second. And if you don't put enough on to meet your soil amendment needs, there will not be any left to be a nutrient in your plant. You know, it's often said that you've got to feed everything that's living in that soil first, and then the crop gets the leftovers. And uh, that kind of plays right along with what you're saying here with the sulfur. Brian was just noticing for us, we had cover crop following silage production last year that cover crop is almost entirely gone uh, we had oats and it got winter killed of course uh and yeah, but we applied manure after the the oats was growing too so it, yeah it's but not we didn't, we didn't destroy the oats though not the oats, entirely the oats no. still look pretty good i th i think we got a lot of good things going on in the soil and we got to feed them maybe maybe it's the soil health kelly that we're just getting better and better on that i agree the I think the sulfur helps improve the soil health from a base saturation standpoint, and then that cover crop and the, the different species you put there, the biodiversity of those different plants, it's, it's terrific. It's, it's so exciting to see what's going on as we get more and more into that. 
All right. Now, you talk about soybeans, and this is one where it's been kind of interesting. And some of our, our friends uh, at the university level have some have been real positive about it. Man, we're starting to see some some improvements there on soybeans by adding sulfur. And others will occasionally quote me some 10 or 15-year-old data. And I, I just say, no, I, I'm not accepting 10 or 15-year-old data. We don't have all the free sulfur in the air that we used to. Uh, what are you seeing on the soybeans? And are you putting a whole bunch out there? All right, so I, I actually called Jason Sly because I wanted to refresh myself on this just a little bit and make sure that I had sounded intelligent for you today. Uh, soybeans, the nodule, so we're always wanting more nodules on the root system of our soybeans. But those nodules, that nitrogen that they're producing for that soybean crop, that is ammonium. And that ammonium has got to be converted into a protein for the soybean to use it. And the one of the most important things is sulfur. Sulfur and moly are the two things that convert that ammonium into a protein and several shots of sulfur. One big shot will not do it because sulfur is so leachable it'll be gone. You need a couple different shots of sulfur throughout the year to to keep that in your system and to have help that soybean convert that ammonium into the protein for the plant to live and, and thrive. Well, certainly having good nutrient availability all through the season is really important. And I know um, we, we hear from guys, too, that are putting ammonium sulfate on a little bit later in the season to try to get a longer length of uh, nitrogen availability, but also to get that sulfur boost uh, at that critical time in the season. That, that, that can be a really big deal, too. Uh, Kelly, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on here. I know uh, planting season, if it hasn't started already, it's got to be right around the corner to you, or for you, so stay safe and good luck with this year's planting season. Thank you, Darren. Have a good day. See you, Brian. Bye. Ooh, even threw in the Brian comment there for you too, Brian, as you're being silent over there just listening and, and absorbing. Well, the problem is if I start talking, then I take up too much time. So, Well, this that's that's a very fair point. So, <laughs> Well, when we're talking, I mean, this sulfur thing, it's a big deal. And that, that's my – it's hard for me to stop talking about sulfur. So I, I, I figure I'll, I'll let you step in. I'll get to mine later. <laughs> All right. So let's head out to Pennsylvania. We've got Ron Olson with us. He's an agronomist with the Sulphur Institute. Ron, how are you doing? Good afternoon. I'm doing great. I hope you guys are. Yeah, we, we sure are. you got to love all this focus on sulfur because I think this is one of the nutrients that just needs to be talked about a lot more than it is. Actually, you're absolutely right. Sulfur is really the fourth major crop nutrient. And um, it hasn't been taught in that fashion. It hasn't been presented in, uh, that it has that much importance. You know, we don't, uh, a crop doesn't take up as much sulfur as it takes up phosphorus, but it is really crucial in, I heard your pr prior guest, Kelly, talking about the importance of the, I mean, he really didn't use the word balanced crop nutrition, but he was referring to that. Um, if we don't have enough sulfur, we're as he said, we're not the, the nodules that are on the soybeans don't do their job as well. So uh, yes, uh, we're waking up to the importance of sulfur, and we have to keep repeating that message. You know, that's how we all learn is through spaced repetition, and um, it's it's not it's not a problem at all to be reminding farmers and ourselves of the importance of sulfur to the crop. 
There's certainly a lot of different ways that sulfur is applied to the various crops in dry fertilizers, liquid fertilizers, uh, manure sources, other sources. Uh, and, and I think about as, as we talk to farmers from all across North America, uh, in some areas, hey, ammonium thiosulfate may be my best and cheapest way of doing it. In, in other places, ammonium thiosulfate, or, or I'm sorry, ammonium sulfate or uh, elemental sulfur may be more uh, readily available and, and cheaper to use. Uh, with with all the different products that are available, I, I know you've got to change recommendations as you move from, from one area to the next and from one crop to the next. So how challenging is that? No, it's it's very challenging, and it's it's important then that the the, the grower, the farmer, has uh, some readily available sources that where he can turn. For instance, he can turn to you guys with your expertise and that of your crop advisors out in the field, and uh, but also the major suppliers that uh, they've been. There's been a lot of uh, attention placed on the need for season-long sulfur um, and a mixture of both sulfate sulfur. Uh, in that in that fertilizer mix, an elemental sulfur that uh, so we get the later season availability of the elemental as it converts to to sulfate sulfur. It's it's needed. Soybeans take up over half. Actually, say, say it another way, soybeans need to take up sulfur all year long, whereas the corn plant it needs sulfur early, but it actually takes up 50% of its sulfur from the time it pollinates to uh, black layer. So you've got, you can't just have an early supply of sulfur in the form of sulfate. You need to have a full season-long supply. And it takes a combination of those products that you're talking about to uh, ensure that you do have a supply uh, during the crop season, growing season to, to meet the crop's needs. All right. One big question growers have, Ron, and Kelly kind of hit on this too, is leachability. Are we going to lose it? We always have felt that uh, in our experience with our soils, that we haven't lost sulfur like we can lose nitrogen, but how concerned do we need to be about that and are there ways to protect it? Well, certainly we have to keep it in, in mind. It, if sulfur does move in the soil, uh, not quite as fast as nitrogen, but it, uh, not too far behind, and we've got to make sure we manage it right. Sandy soils in particular can lose, will have nutrients move through that profile much faster because they have lower cation exchange capacities. There's not as many sites for to store fertilizer and, and, and hold on to sulfur. So it's, we've got to keep it in mind. But um, in, if we make a fall application of sulfur in your part of the world and um, it needs to be soil temperatures can drive how the microorganisms are going to be working and how fast they can uh, convert, you know, convert uh, sulfur into the sulfate form. And uh, if we're fall applying sulfur in uh, in, in in your particular region, I agree with you. There's there's not a, a, a very strong likelihood that you're going to lose much sulfur, if at all, uh, from fall to spring. In well, fact, we've, seen, we've 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 proved it to ourselves. I mean, you you make your fall application, your spring application, and compare them, and there's very little difference between the two in terms of yield results. Yeah, doing the trial work is something we feel is very important for, for farmers to take a look at. If you've got a big question on your farm like this with sulfur, uh, take a look at some sources. Do a little bit of testing out there, whether it's just testing yield or pulling soil tests in different areas. See what kind of difference those management practices and timings are making. Because sulfur, as Ron Olson with the Sulfur Institute has just said, it's the fourth primary nutrient that we've got. It's very important. Ron, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on. Thanks for the work that you're doing, too. 
Well, thank you very much, and uh, have a great spring. You bet. You as well. Talking about the sulfur needs of crops on our show today and taking your calls and questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. We'll be right back. The value of your farm building is in its ability to protect what's stored inside. That's why Morton Buildings ensures that every machine storage and insulated workshop we build will provide superior strength and durability. As a 100% employee-owned company, we're all committed to being the industry leader with a focus on innovation, service, quality, and most importantly, customer satisfaction. To get started on your next project, please visit mortonbuildings.com. What does it really mean to provide the best crop nutrition? With AgroLiquid, it means getting a -a one-of-a-kind approach, one that caters to your specific agronomic needs. You're getting experts who will work with you to create a program unique to your operation, all while accounting for the quality of your soil and the products you're already using. It's not just a product. It's peace of mind, knowing we've thought of everything. That's the AgroLiquid way. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Come to the Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships event this summer. Here at Ag PhD, we're always looking for ways to support and encourage folks entering the ag industry. That's why we're devoting a full day, Saturday, June 25th, to the free Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships event. Though this day is geared towards high school and college students as well as young farmers, anyone with a desire to learn more about agronomy is more than welcome. Our hands-on sessions in the field will include a comprehensive guide to scouting, ways to improve soil and crop health, the role of natural microbes in farming, and how to best collect and manage on-farm data. Plus, we're giving away tens of thousands of dollars in scholarships to eligible attendees. So whether you're a college student or just want some good agronomy information, this is one event you won't want to miss. It's the Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships Day, Saturday, June 25th on the Hefty Farm near Baltic, South Dakota. Learn more and register at agphd.com. If you've ever wondered how the Farmall got its name, here's an abbreviated list of the jobs the Case IH Farmall can do. Baling, cutting hay, feeding, hauling, loading, pulling, raking, cleaning barn, mixing feed, fertilizing, mowing, chopping, seeding, clearing, irrigating, furrowing, cultivating, hitching, digging, emergency tow, harrowing, hoisting, leading parades, excavating, grading. (sighs) Let's make it simple. This tractor does it all. So no matter what you're doing, can do comes in red. Farmall. Learn more at caseih.com slash farmall. Whether or not, relentless control is what you get with Anthem Max Herbicide from FMC. Protect your season from tough broadleaf weeds and grasses with dual modes of action and overlapping residuals that also minimize resistance. With an easy-to-tank mix formulation and wide application window, Anthem Max Herbicide is ready when you are. Visit your FMC retailer or ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow all label directions. back you're listening to ag phd radio thanks for joining us today broadcasting from the morton studio and talking about the sulfur needs of crops and you know we get a lot of nutrient questions into our show on a weekly basis sulfur is one of the top ones we're getting a lot of sulfur questions about how much to put on and different forms that are available so we've got our friend del voigt over at penn state university to talk about that a little bit del thanks for joining us no problem. Great to be here. 
Well, when you think about sulfur, I, I'm sure it's a little bit different where we're at in the West, where we, we don't get a whole lot of rainfall versus some parts of Pennsylvania that, that get a lot more rain uh, and, and have different soils, of course, too. So how do your sulfur recommendations change as you head across your state? Well, I'll tell you what, it's changed dramatically. You know, the, our, our soil specialist has documented the decrease in the, the deposits of sulfur. And so we did a huge study just three years ago. It changed how we recommend across the board because we got tremendous yields on corn, significant yields statistically across all locations. So um, that, that kind of uh, changed uh, how we think about sulfur. Um, and, uh, you know, we didn't do the research in, 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 in our wheat and alfalfa, but given what we got in corn, I would expect the same. Yeah. But it's uh, definitely changed uh, dramatically, probably in your farm as well. Same as us here. We, I was just out with a grower this morning on wheat and, um, you know, it, it's showing the signs that we could use a little sulfur. So he was going to put it on later this week or next week if we get a break in the rain. You know, looking at crops that are a little deficient, and I know for our farm too that our dad used to look at how green things were, and sometimes we'd see a little less green than he wanted in the top of our corn. He'd say, oh, man, I'm probably short of nitrogen. And when we started doing plant tissue analysis, we would find, oh, hey, it might be sulfur or it might be something else out there. So it's certainly something for growers to be aware of. And not only are we seeing more yield on corn and, and a nice yield response, we're seeing a nice tonnage response with silage as well. Are you seeing, have you done much work on silage on with sulfur use? Um, you know, we didn't do a lot of work on silage. We just took it to grain and you know, it's a lot of, lot of effort to get multi locations where you replicate it four to six times and do all that work. So it, it, we did not do it in silage. Um, but in corn silage, you know, it takes up 30 pound of sulfur versus grain you know, on a 250 bushel grain crop is about 20 pounds. So it's significantly higher for a silage crop. So I would think you would see the similar result, um, you know, with, with corn silage uh, that you would with, with grain corn. Obviously, if you get 10 bushels of grain corn, that's going to convert to dry matter, right? So... Yeah, yeah it's, that would make complete sense to me. You bet, you bet. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned the trial work, and I always find this interesting because as a farmer, I want to see just a number. I want you to say, hey, Darren, you put on 30 pounds, and it's going to gain you 10% in your corn yield. Awesome. I'm I'm all in on that. But unfortunately, <laughs> it's not that simple for you. You've got to run a lot of trials and a lot of replications. Talk to us about that just a little bit. Well, uh, so it's interesting because we took soil samples, and then we coupled it with tissue tests and then we took it all the way to yield. And um, the interesting thing was that, you know, this, you don't soil sample for sulfur like you do for the other nutrients. Um, and that's one of the things we found was that you got to go deep. You got to go eight, 10, almost 20 inches deep to really get a good balance of what the sulfur is doing because it's mobile. Um, and its mineralization is very similar to nitrogen. So um, when we did that work, it was, you know, we had to take the soil samples right at the same time that we took the, the ear leaf of the corn. Now remember, this is just specific to corn. If we did it with, with wheat, it would be a different growth stage. 
um, you know, and, a, and soybeans, it would be the uppermost leaves at the, at the R2 stage. And then you got to take the soil at the same time. So it was pretty expensive to do the trial, but at the end of the day, we learned a lot about it. Number one was that if, even if you're low in the top of the soil, that doesn't really indicate what your sulfur levels are. You have to go deep. I don't know how deep you can get down out in your direction, but in our, some of our soils, it's a challenge to get over eight inches of soil depth for the probe. But um, So that was one of the things that came out of the study was that this sulfur is a higher level, uh, lower in the soil. And keep in mind, we have a lot of manure here. I mean, it's, we are, we've got beef, cattle, manure, dairy, manure, poultry, and a lot of times that goes on the same field, <laughs> you know, so sure. uh, that, that gives us some sulfur too. And it, and it's cumulative. So it's, for us, it's a little tougher to thread the needle of how much to apply, you know, how much money do you want to spend on additional sulfur to make up for that? If you're trying to get 30 pounds and you're getting 10 or 15 from your manure, but that can vary. It's not as consistent as fertilizer. So we tend to probably put a little bit more on just to make sure that we have, we're not deficient in that way. But the study was really interesting because it did correlate very well with the, uh, the tissue tests. When we resampled at a deeper depth, uh, that was more accurate than what we found in the tissue tests. So um, and those results have all been published, um, so they're available if anybody wants to look into the fine, finer parts of it. But um, at the end of the day, we've got, we got statistical differences in the yields where we went ahead and documented the deficiency, we corrected it with sulfur, and then we saw the yield improve. So there's definitely a trend there. Absolutely, um, as yeah. As far as me giving a recommendation on your farm, I think you've got <laughs> <laughs> Always a challenge. Some work. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. no doubt. Well, I, I like a, a lot of what you said there too. is is great uh, to to generate more discussion here as well. Considering the sulfur that you're getting from all sources that you're putting out there, and then looking at that correlation with deeper soil testing with tissue testing, we often see guys pulling a six inch core and saying, "Man, that doesn't really correlate." But but like you mentioned. Hey, you got to look at some of these nutrients just like you would with nitrogen. You got to look at sulfur a little bit deeper in the profile because certainly our roots are getting deeper than six inches out there, and we hope to be extracting some of that sulfur. Hey, this is great stuff, Dell. We really appreciate having you on. Thanks for the work that you're doing on sulfur as well, and and thanks for being on the show today. Okay, well, I agree. We've getting I'm getting a ton of questions on sulfur this year, so it's definitely a hot topic. You're right on point. You bet. Well, thanks, Dell. We really appreciate it. Good luck this spring. Yep, we'll see you. All right, so Darren, I was saying a little bit earlier, I had to hold back because I, I, I literally could talk about sulfur the entire show. There's so much to get into, and first of all, let me start with this. There are a lot of ways that any farmer can get sulfur, and this year you might have to be a little more creative than normal. In other words, where I'm going with this is fertilizer is really high-priced, and if you're trying to keep your costs down, Look at all the sources that are available. Maybe you go with something different that you can find a little cheaper. But I think about on our farm, for example, we use ammonium sulfate. We use gypsum from time to time. We use manure. Sometimes we use compost. We use ammonium thiosulfate or other liquids like that. There are companies like AgroLiquid, for example, that have liquid blends, many different ones, that contain some level of sulfur. You can also go dry with a micronutrient. Like, for example, on our farm in the last Two years we have applied zinc sulfate, 
We've applied manganese sulfate. We've applied iron sulfate. We've put on copper sulfate. So lots of different forms there. Now, when we're talking sulfate and almost all the things that I mentioned here, it's sulfate, sulfate, sulfate. There are two main forms of sulfur. It's the sulfate form, and then there's the elemental sulfur form. And probably the biggest question we get about that elemental sulfur thing is, can it lower soil pH? Yes, it can. But the first thing you have to do is make sure that you have good drainage. And the reason why you have to have that, if you don't have good drainage, forget about elemental sulfur. Put it out of your head. Do not use it, is our advice, unless you're using just a really low rate. Because here's the problem. In order for elemental sulfur to break down and become sulfate eventually, bacteria have to be involved. When you don't have air in that soil, then the bacteria aren't aren't there and they're dying and then you don't have the oxygen that you need to make this conversion but basically bacteria plus oxygen plus water with elemental sulfur creates hydrogen sulfate otherwise known as sulfuric acid and that can actually lower soil ph it's proven now i wouldn't trust the charts out there and how much you use but it's proven so we'll talk a little bit more about that and a few more things with sulfur and then get back to your questions in the ag phd mailbag that's all coming up next What's new from New Farm? Leopard Herbicide brings you exceptional planting flexibility for soybeans, field corn, and cotton. Leopard provides your spray plans with a fall or early spring option to boost resistance management. And did we mention it's a highly compatible tank mix partner due to its ultra-low use rate? Ask your dealer for Leopard Herbicide. Available for fall. Revitech fungicide from BASF has been specifically developed for the selective soybean grower who doesn't compromise. If you think good is good enough, if you're okay with just achieving rather than overachieving, if average is your goal, this is not the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide, brand new chemistry, three no excuse modes of action, zero modes of compromise. Sounds like the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide from BASF, that's smart. Always read and follow label directions. What do you think of when you hear Palmer Amaranth or Water Hemp? If you use fierce herbicide in your soybean fields, you don't have to think about them at all. With two effective modes of action and up to eight weeks of residual control, fierce takes on even the toughest weeds like Water Hemp and Palmer Amaranth. Take control of your soybean fields and get incentives from Bayer Plus Rewards when you choose the power of fierce herbicide. Talk to your local retailer today to put fierce to work in your fields. Always read and follow label directions. Introducing Kyber Soybean Herbicide from Corteva AgriScience, the newest Premium Group 15 pre-emergent solution. Kyber delivers three effective modes of action for long-lasting residual activity, meaning your fields won't just be clean, they'll be Kyber clean. And what is Kyber clean? Well, it's a little like... Nice fields! See the difference at kyberherbicide.com soy. That's K-Y-B-E-R herbicide.com soy. Protect your empire. Rule your fields with dual modes of action. Low use rate Authority Supreme Herbicide from FMC combines Group 14 and Group 15 modes of action for pre-plant and pre-emergence control of key broadleaf weeds and grasses. A preventative application keeps your fields clean when it matters most to crop productivity. Visit your FMC retailer or ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow all label directions. 
It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Brian Hefty along with my brother Darren. We're live in the Morton studio today talking a little bit about sulfur and answering your questions. If you've got a question for us or if there's something you'd like to talk about that's going on in your farm right now, the number here is 844-44-AG-PHD. So right before the break, I mentioned elemental sulfur. And this can be a hot button issue because some people have applied elemental sulfur and they say, well, my pH did not go down like you claim elemental sulfur will do. Well, look, it's it's just simply science. If you have high pH soil and you're going to get sulfuric acid out there, it's going to lower the pH. But like I said a little bit before the break, if you don't have good drainage, you should not be applying elemental sulfur trying to lower your soil pH. Because what will happen is instead of the elemental sulfur combining with bacteria, oxygen, and water in your soil, instead of having that turn into sulfuric acid or hydrogen sulfate, as it's also known as, it will turn into hydrogen sulfide and your soil is going to smell like rotten eggs. So that's a problem. The other issue we commonly see with elemental sulfur is there are different forms. Just as an example, and I'm trying to think of how many years it's been now, two or three years. So Rob Fritz, who's occasionally on the show with us here, he's an agronomist, does a lot of work with us for many years now. Anyway, he took two different samples, two different sources for elemental sulfur, sample from each, put them in a jar of water, like a little mason jar of water, clear. You could see what's going on. Well, anyway, by the next day, the one, you shook it around a little bit and you couldn't really hear anything. And it looked like it was fairly well dissolved. The other one, and we're now two or three years later, seriously, he still has this jar in his office. I just talked to him about it. I think it was at our soils clinic this winter and he was there and I brought this up and he goes, yep, I still got it. I still have this jar. And basically you can shake that jar around. It sounds like rocks in the jar. Okay, now if that was the elemental sulfur you bought, and it still sounds like rocks, in water, not just soil and water, in pure water for multiple years, how good is that elemental sulfur for you? Do you really think that's going to create a lot of sulfur for your crop? Is it really going to lower your, your soil pH? No. Some elemental sulfur products have been known to take five years or more to fully come available. So make sure you're getting the right elemental sulfur. And if you don't know what to get, just get samples of the stuff before you buy it, number one. And number two, what you're really looking for is something with a very small particle size. You just want it to be able to dissolve fairly quickly. Then it can come available much, much sooner. So that's really important. Now, one of the other things that we commonly see with sulfur, and I brought this up the other day and I wanted to revisit this quick. So Reed had sent us a question he sent us a bunch of soil tests along with his questions. And one of the questions basically had to do with sulfur. Okay. And he says, we're high on a lot of nutrients, including sulfur. Now, 
one of the reasons why sometimes we see this in soil. So just as an example, he had he did zero to six inch tests and six to twenty four inch tests. Well, it was very common in his zero to six inch samples to find fifty pounds, and it was also common to see three hundred and sixty pounds or more in the next eighteen inches of soil. That's a lot. Now. He wasn't applying, from the way it sounded anyway, he wasn't applying massive rates of sulfur. If he was, then I could understand this. But when he's not, what's that tell you? That tells you there's a drainage problem out there. So usually, now I'm not saying necessarily for reed, but I am saying, because he was up in uh, Manitoba, but I am saying for almost anybody where I see massive rates of sulfur below the soil and I have a good indication that, hey, this is a drainage problem, I'm going to tell you, spend your first dollar on fixing the drainage problem. Because his, one of his questions was high pH soil. And he just made the comment, oh, I'm sure you guys would like to see me lower my high pH soil. It's like eight now. Well, remember, high soil pH is usually the problem, the, the, the cause of it is an imbalance of nutrients in the soil. We've had it on our farm too. I'll just give you an example here a few years ago where we had eight, eight, three, eight, one pHs. And this is only half a mile from our office here, I mean, from the Ag PhD studio, the, the, the Morton studio here. And we we're looking at 1.5% base saturation K. So did we use a little bit of sulfur? Yes, but not that much. But we started getting all these nutrients that were out of balance, in balance. We raised our zinc. We raised our manganese, we raised our copper, and we really raised our potassium, so that got to be good. And you know what magically happened? The soil pH went down. Now, before we did any of that, what did we do? We put tile in the ground and fixed the drainage problem. So once you get drainage taken care of, then you start addressing all these other things. And with sulfur, if you're seeing huge levels of sulfur in your soil, knowing it's a leachable, that's usually an indicator that you have a drainage problem. So just something that I want you to consider. All right, here's one other thing that we rarely talk about on the show, excess lime. So in soil, if you have, let's say you get a soil test and it says you have excess lime. What does that mean exactly? Well, basically that's free calcium carbonate or lime that's just sitting around in your soil. And if you were to dig a root pit, let's say, you might see little specks of white in that soil. And that's that's the free lime that's just sitting there. So sometimes you will be told, hey, put on some elemental sulfur or some other acid-forming fertilizer, and maybe over time you can start getting rid of some of that excess lime. Some people will also do tillage. They'll do deeper tillage to, to start working that up. But eventually you got to get rid of that excess lime Otherwise, what happens is you get tie-up, more tie-up of certain nutrients, and it can just cause a few problems here and there. So it, anyway, that's, that's excess lime. So coming back to this sulfur thing, so I, I would just say we have seen really good response yield-wise, especially when we start talking corn and corn silage from the applications of sulfur. We don't always see that putting on sulfur helps us in every single crop or anything like that. It's just like any other nutrient. It's one component. It's not the whole answer. It's one thing. But what we're suggesting you do is pull more soil tests and find out, do I need sulfur? 
And then you can always do some experiments and just find out, hey, is it is it paying for me and my farm or is it not? But again, just start with the Ag PhD Fertilizer Removal app, and then you'll see how much sulfur does my crop actually need. Okay, I want to come back to one more time now on Reed's question from the other day, just to get that wrapped up because I didn't have a lot of time with this. And again, he's from Manitoba. We were just talking about that, and he's got some excess sulfur and things like that. But the last things on his soil test that I noticed that were out of balance, and again, this comes back to getting our soil pH right, it will eventually moderate if you get everything fixed. You take care of the drainage, which is something I'd at least consider. I get the potassium levels up because he's got as low as 0.3% base saturation K. Well, we know that's going to be a yield impacting, a negative yield impacting factor. You got to get that K up. Usually we're talking 4%. That's where in most crops we see, all right, at least now K is no longer that yield limiting factor. We also talk quite often about micronutrients like, for example, copper and zinc. So in both cases, he's got levels as low as 0.5 parts per million on copper and zinc. But here's one other thing. When you start looking at copper and zinc, we have found there are absolutely interactions between phosphorus and copper and phosphorus and zinc. So like on our farm, and I'm not saying this is the case because I don't know the lab that, that Reed here is working with, and I'm not familiar with that. But I will say with the lab we're using, what we found is we need phosphorus to zinc to be roughly 10 to 1 ratio. We need phosphorus to copper to be roughly, and it doesn't have to be exact this, but it has to be roughly 30 to 1 phosphorus to copper. Well, he's got phosphorus levels as low as 8, 10, 15 parts per million. That's not much. So when I see a half a part per million of copper and a half a part per million of zinc, right away that's throwing up a big red flag for me going, ooh, I better get some more copper and zinc out there, right? But what I'm saying here is if you don't get the phosphorus up in ratio, then adding the copper and the zinc isn't going to help a whole lot. So there are a lot of things to work on. And the challenge, like in Reed's case, he's a young farmer. So these things are always more difficult when you're a young farmer. And let's say the finances are a little tighter than when you're a little bit older farmer like Darren and myself. All right, we'll get back to your questions in the Ag PhD mailbag coming up right after this. Farmers everywhere are discovering the benefits of the Germinator closing system from Farm Shop MFG. Dick from Iowa says, In every case, our germination rate and stand was better than expected. When digging behind the planter, we always found the total destruction of the furrow sidewall and ideal seed-to-soil contact. See more farmer stories and order your germinators for spring delivery today at farmshopmfg.com. What do you think of when you hear Palmer Amaranth or Water Hemp? If you use fierce herbicide in your soybean fields, you don't have to think about them at all. With two effective modes of action and up to eight weeks of residual control, Fierce takes on even the toughest weeds like water hemp and Palmer Amaranth. Take control of your soybean fields and get incentives from Bayer Plus Rewards when you choose the power of Fierce Herbicide. Talk to your local retailer today to put Fierce to work in your fields. Always read and follow label directions. Be sure to attend the 2022 Ag PhD Field Day. I'm Darren Hefty. The Ag PhD Field Day isn't until the last Thursday in July, but we invite you to mark your calendars today for our biggest event ever. 
Each summer on the last Thursday in July, we invite you to attend the Ag PhD Field Day. The reason we invite farmers from across the country and around the world to our farm each summer is to say thank you. Ag PhD TV has had a brand new episode each week for 24 years, and we've been doing a radio show almost as long as well. At this year's Ag PhD Field Day, we'll have way more equipment and equipment demonstrations than we've ever had before. We've got a lot of new technologies we'll put into our research plots on site, and we'll have great family entertainment, including a kids area, music, fantastic guest speakers, and free food and drinks all throughout the day. Please go to agphd.com to learn more, and don't forget to join us on Thursday, July 28th for the free Ag PhD Field Day. There are a lot of choices for closing systems in the market. 360 Wave has been topping them all on side-by-sides. More plants and ears, more bushels. They're in stock and ready to ship from 360. Most closing systems attempt to close from the top down. Wave closes from the bottom up, rolling moist soil over the seed, plus puts starter fertilizer in the sweet spot. There is still time to upgrade your closing system with 360 Wave. Learn more at 360yieldcenter.com. Are you worried about nitrogen loss this spring? Well, we asked retailers what they thought about Instinct Next-Gen Nitrogen Stabilizer from Corteva AgriScience. What they said was so inspiring, we got an actor to reenact it. <clears throat> it's a great return on investment. A great return. Investment, investment. Great return. All right, I think I'm ready to record. It's that simple. Instinct Next-Gen is a great return on investment because it protects your nitrogen. Learn more at protectnitrogen.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, and we dive back into the Ag PhD mailbag here in the Morton studio. Uh, I had a number of questions come in on sulfur, Brian, and I'll start with this one because it came with the soil test. Uh, this is from Austin in Wisconsin. He said, I know we don't have a complete soil sample analysis, but I'm hoping that you'll still help me on my questions. We've had a great response adding 200 pounds of ammonium sulfate in the spring before planting. Okay. Most of our soils are 25 to 32% base saturation mag. Do you think that we're decreasing the mag in the soils by adding the AMS? It seems where I have lower mag levels to start with, I'm having a much easier time getting to a 4% base saturation K. I didn't know if there is a relationship between those two or what's going on. <laughs> well, not exactly. Okay, so if you were going to lower the amount of magnesium with sulfur... And, and how that happens, by the way, is sulfate, excess sulfate, can combine, with ma can combine with magnesium to form magnesium sulfate, or Epsom salts, in other words. That's a salt, and it's leachable. But to do that with 200 pounds of ammonium sulfate, yeah, you're not doing that. You don't have enough extra. That's usually where people talk about gypsum and applying 1,000 pounds a year or something like that, and then you get some volume, and you're able to start driving some of the magnesium out. But anyway, in terms of your question, in, in how, you're able, how much easier you're able to get the base saturation K up when your magnesium is low, of course. The only places your magnesium is low is where your cation exchange capacity is low. So in other words, there are fewer binding sites in that soil, so it takes fewer pounds of potassium to change the percentage in the soil. This is what we talk about all the time in these super heavy soils that we farm in, where it's 20 CEC or 30 CEC. 
there's just a lot of calcium and a lot of magnesium in those soils. So we have to get the potassium in ratio, which takes lots of pounds to do it. And yeah, moving forward, if you could get a complete test, that'd be great because there's no boron, no manganese, no zinc, no sulfur. We don't know what any of those things are. So we're getting most of the picture in your soil, but not the complete picture. All right. Uh, thanks for the questions. Really appreciate that. This one comes in from Stan. He said, uh, uh, I'm sorry, from Garland. He said, thanks for asking my questions here the other day. Really appreciate that. Uh, I, I just have a follow-up question. And again, I farm 10 CEC soil, 2.5% organic matter, 60-inch annual rainfall here in Alabama. I'm wondering, will sulfur applied at planting meet my soybean needs all season, or should I plan a mid-season application as well? Well, look, elemental sulfur is controlled release, and that's part of the reason why some companies will do these combinations, and even some farmers. They'll do sulfate, so it's available today, and sulfur, so it's available slowly over time. So that's one of the things you could do, and then put it all out up front. Otherwise, you could simply... Pull a test in the middle yeah, of the season. Just he's pull using a few K, tests. He's using K-Mag is where his sulfur is coming in. Okay. Yeah. I, I think the odds of an in-season application helping are high. If you've got that much rain and that light of soil, there is little question in my mind I would be trying a split approach. Yeah, but it's not going to take much. It just it doesn't take a lot. So don't get carried away with it. But putting some on mid-season does make a lot of sense to me as well. Okay, uh, again, another sulfur question is from TN. Uh, thank you guys for talking about the fixing high soil pH with elemental sulfur. A couple follow-up questions for you. Uh, can you tell me how long does that elemental sulfur last in the soil? How long does it take to, to maintain that level? And then how often am I going to have to do this? Am I going to change pH permanently? Okay, and I, I didn't address this earlier in the show, so I'm glad this got brought up. In terms of the permanent change, let's talk about that first. Um, if you fix what caused the pH to go up originally, if you fix that, then you're done you're good. If you don't fix that, you're not. So what caused that pH to go up in the first place? A lot of times it's a nutrient imbalance. So like on our farm, what we found is, hey, when the base saturation K started getting really, really low, then our pH was higher. Well, if we're going to neglect K because all of a sudden fertilizers three times the price it was a year and a half ago and we say oh i'm trying to cut back and i'm trying to save money and everything else well it's really hard to save your way to prosperity and but i'm not saying that we need to spend money willy-nilly and so we got to be careful about what we're doing with that all i'm getting at here is all right so let's say we fix our k we get elemental sulfur out there drive the ph down everything's fine well then we start neglecting k again ultimately could our ph go up yes it could or, you know, there's something else we let get out of balance. It could change again. But, yeah, as long as we keep everything in balance and we've solved the problems that caused the pH to get high in the first place, whether it's poor drainage or whatever, then we should be fine. Now, in terms of how long is that elemental sulfur going to be there and how quickly does it work, it depends on, like what we were talking about a little bit earlier, the fineness of that grade and then, of course, water and heat. So if we have lots of water, lots of heat, and we have a very fine grade and it can break down super quickly, then it's going to be available very quick. Well, that's that part's great, but the problem then is it's not going to last super long. So 
you know, I, I don't know what you're looking for if you want it to last longer, you don't. But I'm just saying those are the three factors that we would consider for long lasting versus short or quick activity versus um, we're not going to get activity for a long time. All right. Thanks for the questions. Really appreciate that. Uh, I got a comment that came in on one of our videos on YouTube, and the comment is, Roundup is a poison. Why don't you get out of the dark ages? Apparently, we were talking about Roundup for controlling a certain weed. Uh, Brian, what, I guess we want to comment on that. Yep, I do. And almost every day, we get something that is not based in fact. So let, let me let me just step back for a second and talk about what's the very definition of poison. Because this comment was, oh, Roundup's poison. Well, the way when I grew up, we used to look at the Webster Dictionary. I don't have a dictionary even around anymore. All right. But anyway, Webster Dictionary, it says that a poison is a substance that through its chemical action usually kills, injures, or impairs an organism. All right. Now, today, a lot of people look at Google. And I, I just did even when I said, oh, hey, what's, uh, what's poison? Well, according to Google, it says a substance that is capable of causing the illness or death of a living organism when introduced or absorbed. That's an enormous difference if it's capable versus if it usually kills, injures, or impairs an organism. So I want you to think about even water. Is water a poison? Well, according to Google's definition, you bet it is. Do you know that the LD50 for water is 90,000 milligrams per kilogram of body weight? So like for me, I weigh roughly 200 pounds. If I drank 18 pounds of water right now in one sitting, I got a 50% chance of death. <laughs> well, here's the whole thing. What our dad always used to say is the dose makes the poison. Okay, like glyphosate, it would take 18 ounces per 200-pound person. Uh, but let's think about some other things that, uh, that we commonly ingest and we are told to ingest, like table salt. Well, did you know that, that the level for table salt to kill a person, um, 3,000 milligrams per kilogram, so only 9.6 ounces for a 200-pound person like me. And the EPA, by the way, calls table salt moderately toxic. Acetaminophen or Tylenol, it takes only 6.4 ounces for a 200-pound person. And vitamin D, only 0.032 ounces for a 200-pound person, and the EPA calls vitamin D extremely toxic. Yet you might go to a doctor today who says, um, yeah, you got to take some vitamin D. My point here is this. Again, the dose makes the poison. Glyphosate is proven by governments all around the world, EPA, I mean, all these testing bodies that are actually legit, that it does not cause cancer. And as I just explained, it takes more glyphosate to kill you than it does table salt, acetaminophen, vitamin D, or a whole bunch of other substances out there. Now, I'm not suggesting you go take a bath in glyphosate, and I'm not suggesting you use glyphosate without wearing personal protective equipment or applying it as per the label directions. But what I am saying is, if you're using it properly and sparingly, it's a tremendous tool, and I just turn this back on the last comment here is why don't you get out of the dark ages that's exactly what i would say let's look at science and use some of these things if we use them properly we're going to be just fine 
And actually, we're probably going to be pretty darn safe because we've reduced the stress that's out in that crop. Then the crop produces fewer natural carcinogens, and we actually have healthier crops, not crops that are more dangerous to eat. Thanks for listening to our show today. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.